0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to week six of Forensic Psychology. This week's lecture is going to follow on from last week, where we studied the Enhanced Interrogation Program. And what you'll remember from last week is basically that in this immense moment of need after 9-11, psychologists tried, and I believe benevolently tried, to create a program to assist the Central Intelligence Agency's effort to achieve actionable intelligence from detainees now but one of the things that we saw the same kind of thing we saw in those forensic psychology lectures is we saw this idea almost of kind of scientific or psychological exceptionalism right and that's this idea that when the act or the individual is deemed exceptional to be exceptionally deviant from the norm we feel that the the methods and the psychology and the theories of that individual, they themselves must be exceptional, right? So you can imagine this spectrum of individuals from the kind of the the basic kind of everyday person who you can interview your, your normal way, all the way through to the kind of 9-11 masterminds, the Bin Ladens, the hardened criminals, right? And they're As they get further along the spectrum, the the methods or the, the, the approach that we need to use must get increasingly complex or, as we saw, increasingly oppressive and kind of almost torturous, if you will. But is that actually correct? Or can we adopt more of a humanistic psychological approach, which is the idea that we are all, in theory, humans and the same thing that governs me and the everyday person Those same processes are also governing that extreme terrorist or extremely hardened criminal. Maybe they're not exceptional in that state. Maybe they themselves aren't exceptional, but their context or their environment was exceptional that led to their actions. But the underlying psychology there is all the same. And that's something that we're going to talk about. What I'm actually going to show you by the end of this week is the same theories and approaches and methods that are currently being trained to the FBI, CIA, anyone involved in high-value detainee interrogations. Those same approaches are exactly the same that we would use if we were going to teach a mother to talk to her child or a boss to handle a conversation with an employee or you to better handle interpersonal communications in your own life. It's this universality of communication. And you're probably going to sit there and say, no way, no way. Well. My job is to convince you, and better yet, my job is to show you the research that will convince you. And the good news here, unlike our Frankensteinian adoption and application of learned helplessness, is these theories that I'm going to talk about, not only have they been tested, but they've actually been tested with some of the world's most significant terrorist offenders over the last 10 years, and I'm really excited to share that with you. But before we go any further, I actually want to make sure that we kind of put a bow under that kind of enhanced interrogation program. So what I want you to do is I want you to watch the Vice documentary in which they actually interview James Mitchell, the architect, as he's called, of the CIA's interrogation program. And what I want you to keep a keen eye out for is what I think empathetically and humanly you know, listen to his story and you know, I don't like the idea of portrayal, portraying him as a kind of a, a maniacal villain I don't think that's that's true So, so listen to his story and the situation he was put in but also listen to his almost lay theories about what should and what shouldn't work and why and also even what the role of the enhanced interrogation program was because i think you'll kind of really find that interesting so enjoy that it's about 22 23 minutes and then we're going to come back here and we're going to learn about what comes next all right i'll see you soon
1: many of us, how many of us, how many
0: jealous, real friends, is not
1: many of us. One of the rumors that I, I, I don't remember which journalist it was, started about me was that I somehow walked into the front gate of the agency, pinged on the door and said, you know, there's torturing to be done, let me in.
2: Central Florida and I'm on my way to meet Jim Mitchell, who, according to numerous media outlets and several investigations, was the architect of the CIA's Enhanced Interrogation Program, the program that was used to interrogate suspects like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Abu Zubaydah in the global war on terror. And so right now we're headed to this river called the Mayaka River, where Jim likes to hang out, fish, and look for alligators. Morning. Morning. Hi, how are you guys? Good
3: to see you.
2: How often do you come out here? Yeah.
1: Four times, five times a year. I like the I, I like the wilderness area a lot. Jim, what is this place? This is Deep Hole on the Mayaka River in the Mayaka River State Park. JIM, YOU'RE THE PSYCHOLOGIST, BUT WOULD SOME PEOPLE THINK THERE'S SOMETHING CRAZY ABOUT YOUR RELAXATION IS paddling OUT AMONG HUNDREDS OF ALLIGATORS? NO, I DON'T THINK SO. It SEEMS PERFECTLY NORMAL TO ME. IN FACT, I THINK IT'S A SIGN OF GREAT INTELLIGENCE. <laughs> <laughs> YOU KNOW, THERE'S JUST NOTHING GOING ON. THEY'RE NOT AGGRESSIVE. THEY'RE NOT DANGEROUS. THEY'RE MORE SCARED OF ME THAN I AM OF THEM. AND uh, AS YOU CAN SEE, THERE'S NOT ANOTHER LIVING SOUL AROUND. SO IF YOU'RE LOOKING FOR SOLITUDE OR A PLACE TO THINK, or IT'S JUST A PERFECT PLACE. Everybody needs something to organize and structure their thoughts and whatever's going on in my life is what I'm thinking about normally. Um, you know, everything from gotta mow the lawn to what the hell's wrong with the Senate, you know? <laughs> Why can't we get a budget or something?
2: After paddling the Mayaca and dodging alligators for eight hours, we stopped into Bad Monkey, a bar in Tampa owned by a former Special Operations General where spooks and soldiers come to unwind. I think it would be helpful in order for people to understand uh, your background and your expertise uh, um, to explain uh, what SEER is and why it's necessary.
1: Well, the whole point of the SEER program, it's, it stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. and The whole point of the program is so that the men and women who are in positions of high risk of capture can uh, serve with honor while they're in captivity and then return with their honor intact. and. The training is really focused on helping them um, avoid providing actionable intelligence to the bad guys and avoid the kind of exploitation that you sometimes see. And it was a program designed in case our U.S. soldiers Absolutely. are captured. Yeah, I, yeah I was, I'm was. i sort of thinking that was is well known. But. The assertion is, is that then they took all that data and all those principles and all those lessons learned
2: from the SEER program and then reverse engineered it to create the enhanced
1: interrogation program. That's what Jose Rodriguez says in his book. I mean, I don't recall exactly, but that's the myth anyway.
2: For more than a decade, the United States has been locked in a fierce debate over the effectiveness of its controversial post 9-11 detention and interrogation policies involving high value detainees held by the CIA at top secret black sites. There, captives who included alleged 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, or KSM, were subjected to a combination of so-called Enhanced Interrogation Techniques, or EITs, that were approved by the Department of Justice in 2002.
1: These procedures were designed to be safe, to comply with our laws,
2: our Constitution, and our treaty obligations. The methods, devised from the SEER program, which Mitchell was a part of for over a decade, included sleep deprivation, painful stress positions, wall slamming, and simulated drowning, or waterboarding. The most controversial of all the techniques.
4: I believe that waterboarding was torture,
3: and I think that whatever legal rationales were used,
4: uh, it was a mistake.
2: Independent investigations by human rights groups and journalists over the years have helped shed light on how the program worked and whether it prevented terrorist attacks. One name that has continually surfaced in connection with the program is Dr. James Mitchell, a retired Air Force psychologist who was under contract to the CIA. Mitchell has been called the modern-day father of the Air Force's SEER training program and is widely believed to be the architect of the CIA's EIT program. The agency has never confirmed nor denied Mitchell's role in devising the EIT program, but this week the Senate Intelligence Committee released its long-awaited report on the history of the EIT program. It does confirm that two Air Force psychologists devised and managed the EIT program. However, the report stops short of identifying Mitchell by name. We met up with Mitchell in suburban Florida. We spoke to him about the Senate's report, waterboarding, radical Islam, his military background, and one of the darkest chapters of the War on Terror. This is the first time Mitchell has ever appeared on camera. It's been reported in dozens of books and articles and investigations that you were the architect of the CIA's Enhanced Interrogation Program, also known as EITs, and that you personally were involved with the interrogation and waterboarding of Abu Zubaydah and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Are these reports accurate? and what role did you have in designing the CIA's enhanced interrogation program?
1: You know, I'd I'd really like to respond to those questions, but I can't. I have a non-disclosure agreement, and until I'm released from that, I can't answer those kinds of questions, although I'd like to. I'd love to be able to clarify some of the things that people are saying, because a lot of what people are saying is inaccurate.
2: The Senate report, it's going to reinvigorate the debate about coercive interrogation techniques. Is that a healthy
1: debate that we should I don't, be having? I, I think I think you should have some kind of a debate. I can't believe—I mean, we must have an interrogation program that I don't know about. It, to me, it seems completely insensible that slapping KSM is bad, but sending a hellfire missile into her family's picnic and killing all their children and, you know, killing granny and killing everyone is okay for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is What about that collateral loss of life? And the other one is, is that if you kill them, you can't question them. Where do you fall on that debate between hard and soft interrogations? I think it's a policy decision. I don't have a vested interest in any form of interrogation. But what do you think works most effectively? I would say that for 99% 99% of the people who haven't been trained in sophisticated resistance interrogation approaches, some rapport based program probably works really well for them. I don't really want to go into the details of it, but there will be some people who will withhold information, and some of those will be responsive to coercive... The suggestion that no coercion is ever used by our law enforcement or by the FBI, or it's just silly. And so the first piece of the debate should be Why don't we have an interrogation program at some level? Why are we treating it like a law enforcement matter? So there's a debate
2: over whether hard interrogations, i.e. the enhanced interrogation program, worked effectively to obtain intelligence information, or whether the soft interrogations, the sort of befriend uh, the person that you're interrogating um, and get them to reveal information through those techniques. I don't know that
1: that's the case. Jose Rodriguez in his book Hard Measures and Mark Thiessen in his book According to Disaster both described the enhanced interrogation program and the purpose of it and what they said in their books in slightly different language is that the purpose of the enhanced interrogation program was to get the detainee to be willing to engage with a debriefer or a targeter who was asking them a question and that it wasn't um, designed so that you would ask questions about actionable intelligence while the detainee was experiencing the enhanced interrogation program. So it's almost like a good cop, bad cop kind of setup, you know, with a really bad cop, um, so that it was realistic enough that the person would be willing to engage it if you follow the way they've described it.
2: You're saying that the design and the purpose of the enhanced interrogation program wasn't necessarily to get actionable intelligence. It
1: wasn't. it was to facilitate getting actionable intelligence by making a bad cop that was bad enough that the person would engage with the good cop. I would be stunned if they found any kind of evidence to suggest that EITs, result, as they were being applied, yielded actionable intelligence. I guess, yeah, if you think like it's 2002,
2: there's, we're starting to, snatch up the first round of high-value detainees
1: and we got to figure out how to interrogate them, right? You know, there's no point in this conversation. Oh, no, I'm just saying theoretically, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, without, I'm not gonna acknowledge that it was me or it wasn't me. But if you read Jose Rodriguez's book, Hard Measures, he says that the contractor that they sent job was to look at the resistance strategies that the detainee was employing and make suggestions to the FBI and CIA team that was there doing the interrogations. And I'm not trying to imply that it's me, I'm just saying that's what he says in his book. Mitchell's name first surfaced in 2005 in a New Yorker article that highlighted
2: the role of the psychologist in designing the EIT program and its connection to Sears School. Since then, human rights advocates and a congressional committee have tried to hold Mitchell accountable. Joseph Margulis petitioned the Texas State Board of Psychologists to strip Mitchell of his license to practice psychology, claiming Mitchell violated his profession's ethics. Margulis is the lawyer for Abu Zubaydah, a notorious al-Qaeda facilitator who was waterboarded 83 times in one month. Zubeda is the only detainee subjected to all 10 of the EITs Mitchell allegedly developed.
3: Well, James Mitchell was one of the two psychologists who was involved in the creation and implementation of the Enhanced Interrogation Program. They were really the architects. Our position was and remains. There was no foundation in science. There was no foundation in psychology for that, and that James Mitchell misrepresented his uh, skills and his expertise and that what he engaged in uh, with Zubeda and others was torture and that there should be consequences to his license uh, to practice psychology. Uh, what he did was wrong. What he did is something no psychologist should ever do. He clearly needs to be held accountable.
1: This is a Moroccan knife, and that is a cutting stone uh, that I picked up at the edge of the world, about uh, ninety, maybe a hundred kilometers outside of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Is this from when you retired? Yeah, from this service. Is when I was in the military. You might recognize a couple of the coins. Yeah, I uh, sure do.
2: Mitchell's shelves are lined with books on Islam. He started studying the religion after his close friend was kidnapped and murdered.
1: This is the Sharia law, and you really, if you want to understand. Not just the Quran. This is the Cairo, the English translation of the Cairo version of the Quran. If you want to understand the Quran, you have to study the Hadiths. Uh, We've got several of those, but you also have to come here and you have to actually read what they say about how people should be treated. And what I do is I look stuff up that's interesting to me, to, just to see how they handle it. Like this is the description of how you handle apostasy and what it is and what you do with it. That's John.
2: Yes yeah,
0: John. Back yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah,
1: well, I've read it. Yeah. What do I do? I mean, most of these books seem to be about understanding Islam. I got interested in Islam probably around 95, particularly in fundamental Islam. A very good friend of mine named Don Hutchins was captured by Kashmiri separatists under the control of uh, Omar Sheikh, the same guy that kidnapped Daniel Pearl before he turned him over to KSM. They let the women go, but they eventually killed the men. And I started trying to figure out, what is this about? You know, who are these people? I can understand why people would think that, okay, I kind of deserve that sort of treatment if I get rolled up. But Don was the most gentle man on the planet. So even though personally, I don't give a damn whether you worship, what God you worship, which way you face when you worship, what kind of building you worship in, I don't care. But literally, when you want to kill my friends, and you want to kill my family, and you want to destroy my way of life, you've got my full attention.
2: How has our understanding of the sort of jihadi mindset increased, say, over the last decade?
1: They see us as their primary opposition. They think that even if they can't deliver a devastating blow that cripples us, if they continue to do these smaller attacks, that what's gonna happen is the public will lose its interest in the thing. A number of studies have been done on jihadists, and one thing that's clear is it's not a mental health disorder, they're not crazy, they're not part of some cult. We tend to think of them as sort of suicidal fanatics as people who have some kind of problem with their identity and somehow are brainwashed what i would say is that it's less like becoming a suicidal fanatic and more like becoming a jedi warrior let's let's
2: talk about waterboarding i know oh, a little something about waterboarding in 2007 I was the first person waterboarded on national television. At the time the debate about the use of the technique was uninformed. Some of the politicians arguing for and against it had never even seen it done. So I volunteered to be waterboarded because I wanted the public to see how the technique worked and make up their own minds about whether or not it constituted torture.
1: Yeah, I've been waterboarded too, That's right. Why. Yeah, you I, saw you <laughs> I saw you waterboarded on a video. Right. I thought for I myself, holy cow, look at what they're doing to that guy. You know, I'm surprised you didn't get up and punch him. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> something about those restraints, you know. Were you restrained? Yeah.
2: I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, is waterboarding an effective technique.
1: I'm not gonna I'll give you my experience in the survival school. Right. Bruce Jessen and I spent most of our Air Force career trying to get the Navy to stop waterboarding because we thought it did the enemy's job for us. I can't tell you how many POWs I interviewed who said, I'm not going to put up with that. I'll tell them whatever they want to know. I'm not going to go through that again. if, If you imagine that the task of a person is to sort of organize and execute the courses of action that are required to protect a piece of information, that technique completely undermined a lot of our fighting men and women's resolve to protect information. Does waterboarding constitute torture? Well we know it didn't in two thousand and one through about two thousand and six or seven. I don't think it's the right thing to do. I don't think it's the wrong thing to do. I think you can do it in a way that it constitutes torture. I think you can do it in a way that it constitutes training. I think you can do it in a way that it helps a person shift their priorities so that they experience less abuse later on. It's like every tool in the tool bag. You can underuse it, you can overuse it. There's New York Times article that came out that talked about the treatment of the kidnapped journalists oh, where they ISIS. said or they said they were waterboarded. Mm-hmm. yeah i i'm i feel horrible about that i really do but i think the primary responsibility for that lies with the media because the program was classified they're the ones that spread it out in public made it a hotbed issue si- signaled to the entire world that you know that big segments of the u.s population would be horrified by it so they kind of highlighted it as something you would want to do, and I'm surprised more people aren't doing it. Maybe it's because
2: of, of where I sit, like, on the table now, but I take some exception to the idea that
1: the fault lies... I didn't say all the fault. fault. Right. Not, that, not with the act of doing it. Uh, no, I think it's shared. I think it's 50-50. And do you stop doing something because the bad guys decide to... I mean, do we stop shooting people because the bad guys shoot people? To be candid with you, If you're gonna break somebody's legs or waterboard them, they probably would prefer you break their legs because it's less distressing, oddly enough. But if you're rescuing them, you would probably prefer they be waterboarded. You could take any technique and turn it into torture. The real torture, as legally defined, right you know my guess is they did some version of it that was much more horrific than anything that was actually done to the detainees do you think there are red lines in the techniques that we should use to interrogate people sure i don't think you should do anything that violates the torture convention i think it's hypocritical when you send a a captive to egypt or you send a captive to yemen or you send a captive to someplace else where they're going to be interrogated by people who who are not following US law, whatever it happens to be at the time. They do not question people the way we question people when it comes to actionable intelligence. Does that also speak to a problem is that uh, people will say anything to stop certain types of harsh interrogations? You can make people say anything to stop harsh interrogations if you apply them in a way that does that.
3: The publicly available record is that Mitchell and Jessen reverse engineered uh, skills that they had developed as mock interrogators uh, for the military resistance training program, that is to resist training. They turned that into offensive training techniques to be used for uh, alleged Al-Qaeda suspects. The fact that he says he was qualified doesn't make it so. He'd never conducted a hostile interrogation in his life. Uh, he always worked on phony interrogations. And to represent that he had is simply untrue. We stand by our allegations.
2: With all the times your name has appeared in the press lately with all these articles, with these investigations, do you feel in any way that you've been misrepresented or or thrown under the bus, or that information about you is not accurate?
1: I don't feel particularly like I was thrown under the bus. You know, not by... I feel that way about the Democrats in the Senate, right? But I don't feel that way about any of the other organizations that I worked with. I do think that my credentials have been misrepresented. There's a Wikipedia page, if you go to that page, it says I had no experience in special operations, but I had years of experience in special operations. I was in a special mission unit. You know, it says I have no forensic experience. Well, that's not true, I was a bomb tech for five years, and what do you think you do as a bomb tech? I was a trained hostage negotiator, I was on a hostage negotiation team, I did uh, sanity board evaluations for the court, critical incident analysis. I went to uh, uh, an aeromedical uh, psychology course where I was trained to do aircraft investigations, uh, psychological autopsies. I was an operational psychologist most of my military career. 13 years, something like 14,000 hours inside the lab, taught me about the sort of mental states that are associated with uh, you know, interrogation, particularly that using course of pressure, because we got an opportunity to see a variety of people, all kinds of races, all kinds of intelligence, all kinds of uh, backgrounds, attempting to withhold actionable intelligence. That sort of stuff gets completely misrepresented.
2: So you have this entire military career, but it's all It's pre-911, and Mm -hmm. then you get out in August Mm -hmm. of 2001. Mm -hmm. But you basically thought you were gonna retire from the military with your military salary, maybe do some nice contracts, and then September 11th
1: happens, right? And you remember where you were? Yeah, I was at home. It was, I I still tear up a little bit about that because uh, to me it was horrific that people had to choose between burning to death or jumping off of buildings. I don't think that should happen to anybody. And so I called one of the people that was managing one of my contracts and said, I want to be part of the solution. Really not knowing anything about anything, you know, other than uh, I just, like everybody who watched that, who had a background in the military, you know, we all wanted to be part of the solution. You could just tell everything had changed right for me It just completely changed my life at one point in a conversation with a person I thought somebody ought to do something. I said that out loud to the person and he said if uh, Give me just a second here. What he said was, if you're not willing to do it, how can we ask anybody else? And I kind of thought back to all those people that died for no reason. And uh, so I was willing to help any way I could, Mm -hmm. you know? When somebody asked me if I would be willing to help, I was willing to help. You know, so that's what, that's that's where, it, that's where it was, that's where it is.
2: What do you think when you reflect on, on the last decade?
1: I think I wish I had a chance to tell my story. You know, because I think I should be 100% responsible for everything I did. I think I should be 0% responsible for things people dream of that I did.
2: The Senate Intelligence Committee spent five years and $40 million investigating the CIA's enhanced interrogation program. The committee's report concluded that the program was a failure, that the intelligence gleaned from detainees was neither unique nor valuable, and in some cases, exaggerated. Senator Dianne Feinstein, the chairwoman of the committee, said the investigation is one of the most significant oversight efforts in the history of the United States. The committee hopes that its report will finally settle the debate over whether EITs should ever be used again. Mitchell thinks they're wrong and that they're trying to rewrite history. One day, when he can, Mitchell may write a book to set the record straight about the EIT program. Until then, he intends to spend his retirement fishing and kayaking among the gators.
0: So I hope you enjoyed that documentary with James Mitchell. And if you're interested, I can put some of the links or articles to kind of interviews or the vice interview or kind of studies of them so you can learn a little bit more. But what are some of the things that came out of that documentary, especially around the idea of kind of what the role of the enhanced interrogation techniques were? Some of the things I think that are really interesting to focus on are the ideas that he puts forward in kind of, you know, he doesn't think that it's needed for everyone, but... Going soft isn't going to work on these incredibly hardened terrorists. Right, they're going to need something else. And he doesn't expect them to give actionable inter- inter- actionable intelligence during the the waterboarding. Oh, good. However, he expects it to be such a bad cop that they're then willing to kind of, I guess, speak to the speak to the good cop when the good cop comes in. And I think that's kind of an interesting way of, of viewing it. But what he's speaking to, I think, is this this broader idea around go- like like bad cop good cop or, or being soft versus I guess going hard as the kind of the the interrogation approach you know being oppressive being commanding being kind of overly governing and you'll see this if you ever read any of the doctrine around kind of interrogations military, uh, FBI, whatever it is, you know, they'll have language in there around, you know, being assertive. And there's um, a very famous interrogation strategy called the read technique, um, which is very much ac- accusatorial. Right. You're telling the person kind of what they did. If you remember, um, and I want you to think back to the interview in the Colin Stagg documentary. And you remember my, my, my quip about why that was a bad interview. You know, Colin Stagg was sat there and the interrogator was 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 leading and was saying, you know, you did it, and then you did this, and then you, you know, and then you killed her, and then you did this, right? It's a very oppressive, commanding stance, right? And that's the kind of the, viewed as this kind of, that's a manifestation, if you will, of what we'll call kind of tough tactics, right? And kind of being tough in the interrogation. And on the other side of that, we have this idea of, you know, being soft and being nicey-nicey, right? And I want to show you, because i I don't think the 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 the, the dichotomy isn't fair to be being soft and torture right there there is a a spectrum of tough tactics if you will going from how are you would you like a cup of tea all the way through to waterboarding you 184 times but let me show you what maybe just the the tough tactics kind of look like and this is from a uh this is a, a version of the uk army interrogation doctrine that was leaked a couple years ago so have a look and, and, and tell me what you think. Oh. You fucking Walker. murdering bastard. We've got your phone. We've got your phone. When we see the phone call to his phone, you're fucked. You're to sure that I'm taking a
2: phone again. I don't know what you fucking expect. It's, it's not what you think it is. You're going to fucking hand for this. here look. Okay. Wow.
5: April 2007. An Iraqi man is questioned at a secret British military interrogation centre in Basra. The existence of this film, and 1,200 others like it, has been disclosed during court proceedings in London, brought by 125 former inmates.
0: I haven't eaten or drank for two days. Use your fucking toothbrush. I smell i the You fucking disgusting. And if I ever, ever see you standing there like that, one of my Now
1: say
0: sorry for your
4: fucking attitude. Without yeah, My impression was that the soldiers were trying to get information by terrifying the person they were interrogating um, and by reducing his um, ability to resist their questions. So the purpose was really to induce terror and fear um, and a feeling of helplessness and, vulner- and induced vulnerability in the person being interrogated. I imagine, in the hope, that they would, through that, get the information that was of use to them. you shit.
1: You didn't hit the hotel. I dropped it. You hit someone's house. What's going to be? It. You're a fucking murderer. Was it you? I killed the What
3: if he's going to fucking hang on with this? Why don't you and You were there. You were there. you were there. No. You were there. You were there. going to hang for it? Who is going to be? Who? More.
5: You? More. You're dead. Another video submitted to the court, showing interrogators in training before the invasion of Iraq, makes clear that these men were following standard operating procedure. You're a
4: special soldier with special equipment. You must have killed someone. Did you kill anyone? I'm just a soldier just
0: you are fucking trying to fucking push me off, you fucking little fucking mother! You are fucking on your Hey, hey, look at me, my I'm fucking on You're fucking you fucking You're
4: fucking on You're fucking on you fucking you you the reliability of any information that emerges from those kind of techniques is rather dubious. In the long term, if what we saw on these videos is an example of of what's um, happened over a prolonged period of time, those kinds of feelings of extreme fear, helplessness, um, vulnerability that are induced in the victim are extremely or very highly likely to result in long-term psychological problems and psychological damage. I have certainly seen quite a large number of patients over the years who've exhibited severe psychological disturbance as a result of this sort of interrogation as
5: well as other abuses during interrogation. The interrogation unit trains other members of the British military in what is known as tactical questioning. This video shows a tactical questioning session in Basra in 2003. It was used as evidence during an inquiry into the death of Baha Musa, an Iraqi civilian who died after suffering 93 separate injuries during this session. This latest video shows that this man is being threatened with death, intimidated, subjected to sensory deprivation and is complaining of starvation. All breaches of the Geneva Convention. This man was held for seven months and then released without charge.
4: I can only comment on the fact that I've seen a very short section of film Um, but if that short section of film is typical of a prolonged period of interrogation then I think it's very likely that the person being interrogated would would develop long-term psychological consequences, negative psychological consequences, and possibly develop psychological illness, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, or a depressive disorder, or, or some other anxiety disorder.
5: Another film, made 24 hours later, shows a marked change in the prisoner. He alleges that he was being severely beaten and deprived of sleep between interrogation sessions. His lawyers say that the start of another beating can be heard after he is led from the room.
2: Stop the fuck
0: I hope you turned your volume down for that video. Now, the one thing that I think that video kind of, what it shows is basically the kind of the UK army doctrinal approach to kind of interrogation. And you can see there a very tough approach, very much kind of, you know, um, in command, authoritarian, you know, um, you a know, combination of kind of accusatorial and, and a little bit of kind of, you know, um, kind of a little bit of, of demeaning in there as well. but. One of the reasons that I think that video is so interesting is not even the video itself. It's actually weirdly the top comment on YouTube. Um, going to the top comment on YouTube goes roughly along the lines of, "What do these people expect? Tea sandwiches and a hand job? These techniques work." And I think almost in that top comment there, you you see everything that has kind of is conceptualized in this i uh, in this in this debate, right? The idea that the, the only other approach to this is to be unbelievably nice and we can give them everything they want and that, that this going tough on them actually works and that 's kind of this this psychological lay theory if you will that we never really got to test and, and if you think about the kind of the, the forensic psychology profiling debate and you 'll remember in that lecture we did together, I talked about kind of um, bodies of evidence right and I showed you the in the 40-year review of forensic psychology, there was evidence that they kind of called common-sense evidence, which they viewed was bad, right, which was kind of ad hoc, anecdotal, I can't remember whichever one it was that was like ex, ex machino ergo sum, kind of, you know, it happened and therefore good outcome, thus the profiling caused the good outcome, all of these things. And then the good evidence is the kind of the, um, the good evidence is the idea of you know experimental studies on these things and we've we've got a lot of experimental studies that show that rapport work right that being soft and nice works with with witnesses you know with low-level criminals with your kind of your everyday criminal this kind of stuff but when we're dealing with these hardened taliban al-qaeda whatever it is you know these really serious criminals well we obviously going soft won't work and then what you find is all that common sense evidence comes in. And we, we build this theory in our mind that when it comes to tough criminals, we need to adopt tough tactics. Well, let's dig into that, okay? Let's actually look at that. And what I'm gonna to talk to you today about is a project that's conducted by, and I, and I hate to, I, I sound repetitive almost now, but, but a project run by Lawrence Allison, Emily Allison, uh, different times I've been involved, but, but not definitely not from the, the very beginning. Um, and basically, it's called the Orbit Project, and it's the observing, report-based, interviewing techniques approach to basically um, interrogating uh, high-value detainees. Um, and you can see here, just by, just behind me, this is kind of a Guardian article I can send you. But basically, um, um Lawrence and Emily have now established this kind of reputation now as almost the, not to call them the terrorist whisperers. That sounds terrible, but but they have developed a. A science of how to interrogate the toughest, um, the toughest terrorist, or whatever the whatever the criminal or deviant or whatever the situation is. Right? It's this approach to tough conversations, be it with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in Guantanamo Bay, or be it with you know a boss in a business environment when it's tough and there's resistance. They've developed the science of overcoming it, and that's what we're going to dig into here. But it's so interesting because it all centers on a rapport-based approach. And so in order for that to work, and in in order for me to convince you that that works, I have to do two things. The first thing I have to do is describe what rapport is, and critically, what rapport is not. Then I have to explain to you how you build rapport, what that theorization of rapport building is. And third, and I know they said there was two, there's actually three, Third, I have to convince you that that approach will work with the most seasoned of, of terrorists, of high value interrogator, right? And that's what I'm going to do over this week. I'm going to tr- I'm going to teach you those three things. Now, the first thing I'm going to do in the, in the rest of this le- in the rest of this video is I'm going to outline and define what rapport is, because a lot of people get that wrong. And then on Thursday's lecture. We're going to get together and we're going to look at how it's built. We're going to use some examples, go through some videos, really put this thing together and show you how you can build rapport using the Orbit approach in your own life. And then I'm going to show you how it works with terrorists. And not only that, how Lawrence has evidence that it works with terrorists, with what I can only describe as, in my opinion, the greatest data set ever acquired. So I'm really excited to get into this. And again, buy the book. By the book, um, so let's just quickly jump into what kind of I guess we'll call it the the revitalization of rapport as a as a concept of interest. Now, and, and and the reason I want to jump into this is because it's so critical to the to the story I've been telling you over the last few weeks. Now, as you'll know from the documentary you watched last week and our lecture together, this idea of the enhanced interrogation program became very politicized, right? It became very much a kind of a a those on the right you know were all about keeping it going the cia was all about keeping it going and diane feinstein and the senate intelligence committee they were really about stopping the program and kind of you know stopping those uh, redefining the enhanced interrogation techniques as torture so they couldn't be done well unsurprisingly then it was kind of part of the you know the obama presidency and so one of obama's kind of main things was that he wanted to stop the enhanced interrogation program and he wanted to um develop an alternative approach so when Obama came into power one of the things that he did was he set up a program called the high value detainee interrogation group which is which is which is called the HIG and you can you can google it you can listen to podcasts about it you know you can learn all about what the HIG is and what the HIG its mission was basically was to study the science of how to interrogate terrorists so that the HIG if you will has two arms to it one is a kind of a a supporting research arm so what does research say helps us right and the other is kind of a doing it arm so the HIG has you know the HIG has its own interrogators who will fly out to uh, different locations and different situations and they will actually conduct the interrogations themselves or using rapport based approaches and so this is a really big I guess almost stimulus if you will for people to basically revisit the idea of rapport and it's kind of what it is and its central role in kind of the the interrogation process as a whole and, and just uh, for you know full transparency you know the 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 hig you know funds the funds lawrence who does who developed you know orbit for the hig and then you know obviously that becomes the model that they use um so but it led to this i guess i guess refocusing on how powerful is rapport? What is rapport? And then what is the best way to build it? Now, the funny thing is, if you actually talk to people about rapport, it a lot of people agree that it's absolutely essential. So if you look at just some of the general um, literature there is on kind of police officers using rapport, a lot of them will say that it's one of the, you know, it's one of the cornerstones of the interview process, right? So if you if you look here, you know, this is Dando 2008, basically interviewed police, police interviewers and said, You know, do you build rapport? How often do you try and build rapport in your interviews? They said, Oh, 80%, 87% of the time. I, I always try and build rapport. Right? Interrogators in the US said rapport was the fourth most used tactic that they had. A little bit lower in the US, but still. Both of them there are just emphasizing that an awareness, a general awareness of. The idea that rapport is really, really important. Now, what's really problematic, however, is that while everybody says that they try and build rapport, what we actually find is that not everybody agrees on what rapport is and not everybody agrees on how to build rapport. And not everyone agrees on where in the process the rapport building occurs. So I'm going to go through some of the Dando work, actually, with the police officers, and I'm going to give you a kind of a, I guess, an embellished example, if you will, kind of on, on how I, a way I like to teach and think about rapport. So just quickly, going into the same study with his, with his UK police officers, what Dando looked at here was he basically asked the police officers to describe the concept of rapport to them. So, so when you, you say you build rapport, fantastic. What is rapport to you? And looked at the percentage of agreement. Now, if if we were having a, if we were going to discuss a, a relatively solid concept, and I surveyed a lot of people, what I would be looking to see is a high degree of agreement amongst all of those people. Because if there's a high degree of agreement, it means that we all roughly kind of agree what we're talking about when we say... A thing, right? It's not quite the grand grandfalloon idea from earlier. It's more of, it's more of a shared understanding of what that concept is, right? But but what we see with the police officers when it comes to defining rapport was actually quite a large percent of disagreement, really. So if you look at the number one most uh, most commonly used word was relationship, which makes sense. Rapport is an idea of of establishing a relationship between two people, right? And the second most used word was trust. Again, that makes perfect sense. There should be trust in order for there to be rapport with those two people. Okay, if you're speaking to someone and you want a positive relationship, in theory, you should trust them, right? And then communication being the third one, right? You need good communication in order to build rapport. So on the face of it, That seems like three good findings, right? Rapport involves relationships, trust, and communication. I I actually agree with that. But what's really interesting is if you look at the percentage of responders who use that word, the number one most agreed upon word only has 46% of the responders saying it. So only 50% of the people use the word relationship, to define rapport. Which is a quite a high amount of disagreement, really. So what you get from this is the sense that a lot of the 87% of them said they build rapport. But at the best, only 50% of them really agree that it's a relationship, and really start to agree on that core construct. So the idea of rapport is almost kind of mercurial almost. There's that famous legal quote if you will and I wonder if it applies here but it was originally used as a definition for child pornography and law but it's since been used as a definition for terrorism and, and, and if you google it, it it gets applied commonly but it's like you know I can't define it but I know it when I see it and well well maybe that's what I guess maybe that's what rapport is but but that's not really I guess particularly helpful if we're being honest but you know that's one of the senses we're getting here is everyone says rapport is really good I want rapport but but how would you define it? You know, and let me ask you a question, right? You obviously want to have rapport with your professors, right? Virtually whatever the hell that looks like. I would like to believe that, that you know, I have rapport with a class. Well, what does that rapport look like? What? how would I describe rapport with the class? Would it be communication? I think it would be like, good communication or relationship. Yeah, I'd probably describe it as a relationship to a degree trust i'd like to believe that there is 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 bi-directional trust but oh, i don't know i feel like there, there, there's other elements of it that i almost i can't put my cup of my my words on at the moment right and that's kind of the difficulty with rapport you're seeing that here in dando's description with the police officers but what's really interesting if you if you go to kind of i guess the the next slide is is looking at how people talk about building rapport and I think it's really really interesting so, so what we've got here is he, again he says to them the same thing okay so so you know you want to develop rapport with a suspect so so how do you go about building rapport right and the number one thing is discussing common interest self disclosure being direct about the interview and again 44 40 and 20 percent right so this is really interesting because it it's this idea of it's a very the way that they're describing rapport is very much a a kind of a tools in a toolbox model, right? So so imagine now I want to build rapport with the class. Okay, I I come into the class and I I sit down and I I I would discuss common interests. So I say hello everybody, how are we doing? who Tom Brady, hey, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Yeah, Tom Brady, Tom, big T, big T, right? I mean, sure, is it building a relationship? I'm not entirely sure. Is it rapport? I don't think it hurts rapport, but it's very much a, a kind of a routine kind of kind of process here, right? self-disclosure. I could come and I could tell you about myself. I could say, hello, everybody, I have a dog, or I have, well, you know a lot about me, actually, with this whole virtual learning world, right? But again, it's, these, are the, the, what, what I get, the sense I get from this research here is that people believe that there are, there are routine ways in which you can build rapport and that these are achieved through certain questions and or activities that are done separate to the beginning of the interview and this is something you'll see from a policy standpoint is a lot of interrogations or interviews start with the rapport building phase right so if you imagine now in the class model right before doing the lecture, the, the content, I suppose, the substance, there is a rapport building phase in which I would discuss common interests, disclose about myself, and be direct about the lecture or what the lecture is going to involve, right? And that's how rapport is traditionally kind of, if you will, defined. Um, amongst those who use it and you'll see it in the police narratives you'll see it in the police policy in the police handbooks right it's this sit down there build rapport check the box and then you move on right and that that model of rapport, it, it's something you'll see in uh, right here's my here's my i guess if you if you want to look at rapport bad if you want to look at bad rapport in action try and buy a car at a at a car showroom Right. And so I did this recently and I found it very, very funny because I don't like to tell them what I do. Um, and so I go in there and you could see the guy going through the stages of rapport building, right? Oh, what do we have in common? Oh, did you see the game at the weekend? Oh, you know, I have a dog as well, right? All of these things. I'm like, okay, 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 this is fine, this is fine, this is fine. And then it got to kind of the, the conversation about the car. This is a couple of years ago and I didn't want it. And I was like, no, I'm all right, thanks. Um, and then they started because they realised that it wasn't going well they started amping up the rapport building but they were just doing more of the original rapport activities, more of oh well, what if we talk about our common interests what if, we, what if I self-disclose a little bit more at one point, I kid you not the guy said to me, oh you're left-handed I was like yeah, he's like, I'm left-handed too us left-handed people gotta stick together and in my head I was like this is how it felt me, I guess, as the as the interviewee, you, you can't expect me to make a, a, a quasi life changing decision because we're both left handed. And that's one of the problems with this kind of traditional def- definition of rapport, if you will, if you view rapport as a stage and then it's kind of abandoned and moved on is it's nice. Rapport's nice. We can chat about non non important things. But that doesn't necessarily make me keener to discuss sensitive or troubling or really high-stress situations. And this is the example I always give to my students, right? This is the conundrum that we always have. I can be phenomenally nice to my students all day long. I'm I'm more than happy to be nice to students. I thoroughly enjoy it. I like like discussing common interests. I like the rapport-building phase. I like to talk about things that aren't related to the lecture, right? But how can I maintain rapport and also tell you that I'm not going to increase your grade just because you think it should be? Or I'm not going to give you an extra two weeks on the quiz just because you want it? Right? No, no, normally I am very flexible, of course, but you know, very occasionally we have to have hard conversations. And I have to give hard answers. And the question then is, well, how does rapport, defined as being super nice at the beginning of the interview, how does that handle that? How is that robust to that? And that traditional definition doesn't really hold up. And that's why there's such a big problem with this kind of going soft rapport model working with terrorist offenders. Because people can't conceptualize this idea of being being super duper nice to someone, but then also having a hard conversation with them without suddenly being bowled over or rolled over because all you're doing, dare I, dare I quote back the YouTube video, is tea sandwiches and a hand job and being super nice to everybody, right? How can you do that and be tough? Well, the problem is that that isn't what rapport is. Rapport is not a stage. At the beginning of a um, at the beginning of a conversation, it is not something that is built through asking three or four predetermined questions, right? There's another one, another really popular one that I, you may have come across, which is called kind of Caudini's principles of influence, and it's, it's likability, and it's um it it, it um estab- a behave establishing a behavioural contract. So I'm not being I'm not being fucking funny. The the car salesman gave me a pen, and in his little fucking mind, he was like, oh, I've given him a pen. That's a behavioral contract. He's definitely, he feels like he owes me now, and he's definitely gonna buy a car. Are you fucking kidding me. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, these are so superficial, and the real problem with that that, that superficial perception of rapport is when the person knows that you're being superficial, It annoys them even more because they know that you know that you think this is building rapport. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have in terms of defining what rapport is. So when it comes to what we now know about rapport and the model of rapport I'm going to teach you on Thursday is that rapport is not a box that you check when you begin an interaction. Right, and if you actually look at um, some of the army work I was reading earlier, some of the old army doctrine that's still in practice, right? It talks about rapport building, being nice, being sympathetic. It literally says like feigning super, feigning sympathy and pretending, right? And then it says, if the conversation gets uncomfortable, go back to the rapport com, go back to the rapport building phase and try being nice again. No, it's not. That's not what it is, right? That is the equivalent of me thinking that you and I will have rapport if at the start of a lecture, I simply ask you how you are. Now, I don't think that's going to hurt, but I also don't think that's enough for rapport. That's a very lazy and and kind of one-dimensional view of what rapport is. I walk in, how you doing, how you doing, how you doing, everyone have a good weekend? Right, shut up, I'm lecturing. Right, that's... Oh, the, the rapport phase didn't last very long. Right, no, rapport is this oxygen... Right. I want you to think of rapport as an oxygen that is always in the room in every interaction. It's there when you walk in. It's there the entire time. It's there when you walk out. It's this whole world of lived interaction that exists within that interrogation room. Rapport is always there. It's sensitive. Right? Imagine in an interaction, the rapport right? meter It can go up, it can go down, it can go up and go down. But it's not that it goes up, tick, it's set you move on, it's always there, it fluctuates throughout an entire interaction. You and I can have rapport for 59 minutes of a lecture, and I can say one thing wrong, and it's gone. And I've I've done this in class, like back when I was a a much more junior lecturer, I felt it when class has been getting on fine, something's happened, and bang, I say the wrong thing, I answer the wrong question. I maybe don't answer a question, right? And the rapport is gone. And the class is looking at you at that point like, go fuck yourself, sunshine. Right? I'm not being funny. I felt this. Rapport is this oxygen. It's fragile. It exists throughout the entire interrogation. But the real thing about rapport and why it works when it comes to terrorist offenders is that rapport is not being nice. Rapport is not going soft rapport when you have it is the foundation that allows you to have very very tough questions while still maintaining the ability to cooperate and work together and function in that interview right because rapport can't possibly be so fragile that any bit of bad news you know breaks it down rapport is this foundational iron-esque foundational um uh kind of kind of infrastructure around an interaction that allows you to handle the resistance to handle the pressure to handle the kind of the, the the weather beating down on whatever structure it is that's what good rapport is you have good rapport with a best friend right think about it this way you have good rapport with a best friend you have good rapport with a loved one, right? Now, when you have that good rapport, which you don't build by saying, how was your day, darling? You do say that, you say those things, of course you do. But that's not what your connection comes from, right? But you, when you think about someone you have good rapport with, you two can have a tough conversation and also know that you're gonna be okay at the end of it. Right? I always view it as kind of, is uh, the difference between a good and a bad relationship is the confidence and ability to have a hard conversation. Because you can have a hard conversation, but know that deep down the foundation is still strong. Or in a bad relationship, you're scared of having that hard conversation because you don't think your relationship will handle the, the stressful interaction or the, bad, or the negative interaction right. That's what rapport is. That's where rapport comes in, is it provides you the comfort to be tough. Now, when I think I have good rapport with you, what I mean by that is if you can come to me and say, Professor, I don't think you marked my midterm correctly. I think that you don't think I'm as clever as I think I am. And I don't think that you were correct to give me a B. I'm actually an A student everywhere else. And I could say, okay, fine. Um, this is why you didn't get an A. And I'm just going to openly tell you. You didn't do this. You didn't do this. You didn't do this. Here's this student. They did this, this, and this. And they got an A. So I'm sorry. I don't believe you get an A. Now, if we have good rapport, that student should look at me and say, okay, do you know what? I agree, Well, they may not even agree, I don't agree, but I respect your opinion and I respect your transparency and you know what? We're still okay, right? That's what good rapport looks like. Bad rapport looks like they come in and they ask me for an A and if I don't immediately give them an A, they say, GTFO, we're done, I don't like you anymore. That's a fragile, that's a weak relationship and that's a weak relationship for an interview or an interrogation to be built around. So rapport is much more complicated. It's much more dynamic and it's much more dyadic in that it is based on the interaction of these two people. But when you have rapport and when you build rapport well, you can handle the toughest conversations with the toughest people. And that's the revolution around what rapport is. It's not this this nicey-nicey at the start of an interview. It's not asking what your favorite soccer team is. It's Not asking if you watch the Patriots at the weekend and then moving on. It's this oxygen that surrounds an interrogation. When ironclad and built well, that interrogation can handle hostility. And that's what I'm going to teach you on Thursday. I am so excited to get into this. So thank you for the lecture. I'll put these slides on Blackboard. I just wanted to walk you through the old report because Thursday we're going with the new report. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this. And I will see you on Thursday. I'm very excited. Have a great week.